0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. If you would, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're continuing our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, given to us by Christ. And we've titled the series Live, and here's what I would say. The series is titled Live because we don't actually believe that people and humanity truly live and experience all that life has to offer until you're reconciled into a relationship with your creator, which is only made possible by, through, and in Jesus Christ. And then how we also live and live life to the fullest is to be in relationship and enjoy the union that we have, but also to live consistent to how God has laid out his law for us to live as well. And so so that's why it's called live. And so if you're visiting, you're a, a new Christian, maybe a non-Christian, that might be a shock for you. And it might be a big statement to say, we don't believe that you're actually going to enjoy all of life until you are reconciled to your creator. But if there is a creator, which we fully believe there is, then we would know that our purpose in life is to be restored and reconciled to him. And so I've never preached in a hat this morning. I've been in ministry, I think for 11 years. And so it's purposeful. So if you're freaking out in your seat, hang in there with me, I'll explain it in a little bit. So, okay. So let's pray. There's a lot to pray for this morning too, guys. I'm not sure if you guys are aware but I saw it on the news this morning. There was a shooting in Sacramento last night as well, where uh, I think six people are died and more are injured. So, there's always a lot going on, which is why we want to stay in the pulpit week after week after week after week and do this. Not give good tips, not give good advice, but preach the greatest news ever. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for not just news, but good news. Our, will, our, our world is filled with bad news, but Father, you've given us the greatest news, the good news that you through your son, stepped in to rescue and redeem, to provide hope. Without you, Jesus, coming to this earth, we are hopeless. And so we thank you that we can not just live, but live life abundantly and to the fullest, because you've provided the way for us to be reconciled back into the arms of the father, to be loved for all eternity to be seen as righteous and holy, as perfect, as we were just singing about. And to know that, Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, but pleading for us. Your work is sufficient, not just sufficient for past sins, but it's constantly applied to our life. Thank you for your blood, Jesus. For those that are hurting and grieving from the loss of a loved one last night, for this world, every time that evil and injustice is exposed, we see, Lord, that things are not as they should be. And we praise you that we have a creator that knows pain because you've stepped in and you know what loss feels like. Comfort those that are going through this pain right now. Strengthen us, Jesus, this morning through your word. We thank you so much for it. That you have spoken that your word is authoritative. We love you. Holy Spirit, lead us in this time. Speak to us and encourage us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our main point in our structure this morning is going to be this. Dang, the word dang, comma, but, comma, and then and, okay? So the, the, the sub-point will be Jesus came to us so we could go to him. So Jesus came to us so we could go to him. But we're going to look at that, that, that there's a big dang in this passage, and then there's a but in this passage, and then there's an and that we have here. And so read with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, The kingdom of heaven. I think it's important for us to understand a a few people in the narrative today, uh, and, and specifically who Jesus is referring to. So, first, obviously, we have Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God incarnate, he's God in the flesh. So, he's there. Giving this sermon, but we also have the scribes and the Pharisees. So the scribes were a group of people who they were the scholars of their day on interpreting Scripture. So they were the people that you would look to the modern-day professors at a seminary, someone like that. Okay, they're they're the D. A. Carson's, the N. T. Wrights, the R. C. Sproul's, guys like that of our time. That's who they were. But then you have the Pharisees, and those are the people that are uh, are, are just zealous specifically about applying the law to all areas of life. And so that's who is in the audience Jesus is speaking to right now. But he's also talking to primarily Jewish people. I mean, that's who this, that, that is who that is Jesus' audience. You have scribes, you have Pharisees, and then you have the, the Jewish people. Matthew knows that. Matthew knows his audience, okay? It's important for us to know that because of what Jesus is saying here and, and what he's going to unpack today, that he, he, he's not coming to get rid of the law, to abolish the law, or anything like that. The reason why people had such a big problem with Jesus is because Jesus didn't uphold their tradition or their customs, and they believed that the traditions and the customs that they upheld should be upheld to, okay? I grew up with many traditions, okay? One of them is in regard to hats, okay? And many of you grew up with customs as well. I remember recently, I watched a man preach a sermon with a hat on, and I was appalled, right? Right? I was like, who does this guy think he is? And and then I was like, but I'll hear him out. I was more appalled by how he preached the word of God. And I think that's where our heart can, our our greatest concern should be. I grew up in a family to where you didn't wear your hat at the table. I don't know if many of you grew up in a family like that where you didn't wear your hat at the table, but you also only wore your hat in one direction, okay? I was literally told at one point in my life that this means, and I know someone out here has a backward hat on, sorry to call you out on this. This means you're going in reverse in life, okay? I was literally, I was given the speech. This means you're moving backwards, okay? This means that you're in neutral. And so I was told, where do you want to move in life? Do you want to just constantly be neutral, which this to me seems like you're going backwards? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you want to be moving backwards? Or in life, do you want to be a man, that's what I was told, that moves forward? I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to wear my hat forward then, I guess. I was also told that men don't wear earrings. Okay. And I was also told that men don't, men don't have tattoos. Okay. So I'm not doing great on several fronts at this point, according to how I was raised. That's a culture I was growing up in. It was definitely part of the culture I grew up in that you would never wear a hat inside of a church building. And in fact, many houses you don't wear hats into. So Where where does this come from? Well, what happens is culture determines laws and then they come into the church and the church says, well, we should uphold whatever law this is or tradition it is. And Jesus was like, no, no, no. This, this in the Old Testament, this is my law. This is my authority. Anything beyond that, uh uh-uh, this is it. I wrote it as the divine author. It's sufficient. You guys have just added a bunch of stuff to it and then told others that you need to uphold it as well. That's what we would call legalism or being pharisaical or something like that. And so I didn't even have control as a kid of the haircuts I had to wear, okay? So here's me at five or six years old. (laughs) which cultures you grow up that it's appropriate to laugh at people like that <laughs> I, I don't mind that's me I remember literally every time I sat down inside of a barber chair my dad would make the comments of like we ain't rais- raising no hippies in this household or something like that and so uh the barber would be like what do you want and my dad'd be like flat top and that was like I was like that through like grade school I mean don't talk about trauma that was my haircut that's how I grew up, because in the household tradition that I grew up in, this is what it meant to be a man. You can get rid of it now, Zach. <laughs> I read, I, I literally read this, this morning on the Christian board, can you have a mullet and be saved? It was a genuine question. I'm like, obviously, no, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Just so please don't panic. It was a joke. <laughs> I had a conversation. This is this is this is totally. I'm I'm digressing. I had a conversation with Hunter, who is our communication director this week, about mules. Mules are the shoes that women wear, right? You got women know what I'm talking about. And I was like, those are like mullets. Business in the front, party in the back. Like, you gotta you gotta make up your mind one way or the other here. So, all of that to say. A lot of stuff has from culture seeped inside of the church and even said, this is what you wear, this is what you don't wear. And and I'm not trying to be rebellious or edgy. I'm one, and and anyone who's been here for a while that knows I'm not a a suit and tie guy, I'm not even a button-up guy. And again, I'm really not trying to be rebellious. I just feel claustrophobic wearing them, you know? And so it's just not something I like to wear. But a lot of the preachers and teachers that I respect and and I listen to, like Sproul, like, like Dr. Brian Chappell, like some of these men, they wear suits and ties but I've not heard them say this is the appropriate peril that you must wear inside of a church building because that would be legalism. And in fact, we have a lot of traditions, even a pulpit, if you move a pulpit out of the way, some people might have a problem with that, but where do you pull that from, from inside of the text? So I do think that's why application number one, we have to be faithful students of God's word to first even know what God's word is telling us and then also what culture and what tradition is telling us. And that's where the big problem when Jesus came in. Let me read a few things. You see, the reason why Jesus is starting off saying this, look here, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's saying, look, I've come to complete them in their entirety. So Jesus is like, at this point, the scribes and Pharisees are like, okay, well, Good. Why, why does he need to say this? Because he knows his audience and he knows what's circulating a- about himself. What was circulating about Jesus is that obviously he doesn't like the law or he's antinomian. That's, that's a big word that means anti-law. So obviously Jesus is anti-law because of the way that he's living, the things that he's doing, the people that he's keeping company with. We have a massive problem with Jesus. So people did take offense to Jesus because he was not upholding their traditions, okay? In fact... Let's read this from the the Mishnah. The Mishnah is taken from the Torah, which are the first 5 books of the Old Testament, okay? And then what the Mishnah does is it takes and and it breaks down the laws and says here in a sense it codifies and says here's how you live according to these laws from the original text, the first 5 books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, okay? So that's what the Mishnah does. Is it's it's, it's saying Sabbath, here you go. Here's 39 regulations on how to Sabbath. How many steps you can take, what you can pick up, what you can eat, and what you can't eat. So I believe we have a slide for a couple of these. This is why people had a problem with Jesus, specifically the Pharisees and the scribes. Look here. Keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked, okay? That is something that the Mishnah says. In other words, don't hang out with evil people. So the scribes and Pharisees took that, Don't hang out with anyone that we have deemed a sinner. But we know this from scripture, that Jesus was a friend of sinners, that he ate with them. When you ate with someone, you are welcoming welcoming them into a friendship. That's what it meant back then. And so already, Jesus hangs out with the tax collectors. He hangs out with people that people don't think you should hang out with. So they have a problem with that. They're like, whoa, he's not supposed to be hanging out with those people over there. Then it says this. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law. And at the last will inherit Gehenna, just another word for hell. Okay. Jesus taught women. He hung out with women. They sat at his feet. They were part of his ministry. So the scribes and the Pharisees don't like that Jesus isn't upholding the Mishnah. He's not holding these traditions that we think he should uphold. We've added to the tradition, and now we've said, you need to uphold our tradition and our laws that we've created beyond scripture. That's legalism. I'm an active hunter. I love to hunt. And every year, Oregon prints out the regulation booklet. It tells you what the laws are in the state of Oregon, where you can hunt. It even tells you if you're a a waterfowl hunter, which is a duck hunter, that this is the time you can legally start shooting at, maybe at 6.45 a.m., If I say I'm not gonna start shooting until 7.15, that's one thing, but the law of Oregon doesn't state that. Now, if I tell everyone else that hunts me, hey, none of you guys can shoot till 7.15, they might be like, well, that's not what even the law says. It's me moving it further. Now, the motive for doing this, I think, was good. It was to try to protect the law. But what happened is it made everyone super religious on an external front, okay? Meaning that they knew how to check all the boxes. They knew how to do all the right things externally and look really good. Their hearts were just dead. That's why Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He, I mean, that's really offensive. He's saying, you are a rotting corpse. You know the rules, you know the regulations, you've added to them, you check the boxes, but your heart does not know me and in return does not know the Father. So this is why Jesus feels the need to say this because he's not saying, I didn't come to get rid of the law. Jesus loves the law. It is a reflection of his own character who wrote the law. He's not saying, I didn't, I, and there's a misconception. If someone tells you this, you, you need to know this, that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, he is not upping the law. In a sense, he's not changing the law. He's not renewing the law. What he's doing is helping people see how they have misunderstood the law in the first place, that it's not primarily about external actions. It's about a heart. And you'll see through the rest of the sermon, what he's doing is he's unpacking it in in, in a heart issue. You talk to even many men that say, hey, I struggle with lust. I've I've rarely ever heard a man say, hey, I'm I'm struggling with adultery. Will you pray for me? And you're like, what do you mean by that? It's like, well, I've been looking at women in, in an adulterous way. That's how Jesus describes lust. We like to say lust. We think it sounds a little bit better, but Jesus comes in and says, hey, this is a heart issue. It's actually adulterous. And so he is explaining what it means. It's more than just a box you can check. It's a heart posture toward God. So at this point, they might have been like, okay, well, that's at least good to hear. I did not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill them. Then they would have thought, well, what in the world do you mean by that? Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Okay, in verse 17, we have a dang because he said, I, I've, I'm, I'm coming to fulfill the law. In other words, I'm not getting rid of this. And he's saying, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. This is a dang, this is like an uh uh-oh. What's happening here? Jesus is saying, no, I, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. What does that mean for us? In regard to God's word, in regard to the law, what does it mean for us? And why does Jesus say the law or the prophets? Jesus is simply referring to the Old Testament as a whole. He does this in Luke 24 as well. You see, another tradition is, our tradition is that we've structured the Old Testament the way that it is today. That is a more recent tradition. Our Hebrew Old Testament Bibles are structured in what's called the Tanakh ordering. okay? So they're structured with the Torah, then they're structured with the prophets, and then they're structured with the writings, And so that's how the Old Testament was broken up into three scrolls, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So when Jesus is saying this, what he's saying in a sense is all of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. It's all of the Old Testament. I didn't come to get rid of any of it. I came to fulfill it, and not a single dot, iota, anything like that is going to pass away until all is accomplished. What does he mean by dot or iota? It's a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. We have a slide for this as well. If you look up there, you should be able to see the smallest dot there, or it looks like a backward C, I think it should you guys do. That's a yacht. So what he's saying is the smallest letter in the alphabet in, in the Hebrew alphabet is not going to go away. Nothing's going to go away. A squiggle, a line, anything like that, until all of it's fulfilled until I've accomplished every single bit of it. OK? Look at what he says next. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, <clears throat> commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying this. Whoever does all of these commands and lives according to them and then teaches others to do the same, they're going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever doesn't is going to be called least. He doesn't say that you're out. He says you're going to be called least. And then so we need to ask, what is the kingdom of heaven? Matthew is one of the few authors, and I think, don't quote me on this, he's the only author that actually refers to the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of heaven. The other authors say kingdom of God. The reason why Matthew, a Jewish author, says kingdom of heaven is because of this. He knows his audience, and he knows that the Israelites wanted a Messiah to come in who was going to take over the Roman government Usher in His kingdom and get rid of their oppression. The way we could easily define kingdom of God, and I get this from Patrick Shiner, is God's people living in God's place under God's provision. Okay, God's people living in God's place under God's provision. So God's always had a people living in a place under His provision. In the Old Testament, it was the Israelites living in Israel, the Promised Land, under the provision of one of God's kings, like King David. Nowadays. God's people living in God's place under his provision looks like this. God's people are the church. We are one in Christ. We are the body collectively. There's neither Jew nor, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor something, nor Greek, all are one in Christ. Living in God's place on the earth, instead of a tabernacle, we become the tabernacle. The local church becomes that under his provision. God provides our greatest need for us. He provides salvation, rescue, and hope through Jesus Christ constantly into our lives. That's what he provides. What Matthew was saying, instead of kingdom of God, he's essentially saying the same thing, but he's saying kingdom of heaven because he wants his Jewish listeners to know this. I'm not talking about an external place here on this earth where the Messiah is going to come and set up a throne here and then get rid of the Roman empire. He's like, I'm talking about an internal state. So he is saying that this is more spiritual, which is why he says, kingdom of heaven, this is a spiritual thing that Christ is going to do in and through our hearts and lives. Now, we get to the biggest thing, like, uh-oh, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh. Jesus is now looking and saying, you see these guys, and." You, you have to know this. It, it was a good thing to be a scribe and a Pharisee back then. It was a good thing. Like, these are the people that people looked up to. These were the holy and righteous ones. And, and they were the ones that were praised in, in a primary, uh, primarily illiterate culture. These are the people that had the education, which is why when Jesus comes on the scene, people, again, they're like, who is this guy? He didn't come up in the rabbinic schools. We don't know him. We don't know where he got his training from. We don't even know how he learned how to read. And he speaks with authority. The prophets came in the Old Testament and they said, for thus says the Lord, Jesus appears on the scene and says, truly, I say to you, what is he doing? Ascribing divinity that he is God here in the flesh to himself. No one else speaks like that. Truly, I say to you. The other translation of that word is amen or certainty or truth. He says, truth, I say to you. Jesus over and over again, and, and Matthew unpacks this over and over again, says, truly, I say to you, truly, I say to you, because God is now on earth saying, this is what I'm saying. He's proving and showing his divinity. Again, these people don't know who he is. They don't know where he came from or anything like that. He's just some kind of rogue guy. And do you know what their problem is? Yes, they, they might be concerned that he might be teaching a rogue doctrine, but their problem is, is that Jesus is gaining followers and they're losing approval. Many times in life today, we struggle with the same thing the Pharisees did. We like to call them names and be like, don't be a Pharisee, but we want man's approval so bad and so today, so much so that it governed their lives. Again, this, this man who's supposed to be uneducated, who was a, a carpenter from Nazareth comes up and people are like, who is he? And not just that, but like intellectually, he smashes the spiritual elite. I mean, l- lets them have it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, Goodwill Hunting. The, the main character, Matt Damon, is, is, is a man named Will Hunting. And he's a guy that is a janitor for MIT, no, I mean, no one knows who he is. He's essentially a nobody. And one night he goes into a bar there and they're all hanging out. And there's this other guy that's really trying to impress people and trying to impress the ladies. And he just gets owned by Will Hunting in, inside of the bar. I mean, just, he makes this guy look foolish. And then everyone's like, who is this guy? This guy, then Will Hunting goes on to solve this I- in incredible mathematic equation inside of the school. And they're like, who is he? And they're like, he's a janitor. He's like a nobody. Where'd this guy come from? In the same way, you have to understand, Jesus pops on the scene. They're like, we don't know who this guy is, but he's speaking with authority. People are following him. And then he's intellectually smarter than them too. Like, uh uh-oh, man. Again, it was never a bad thing to be a Pharisee. It was never a bad thing to be a scribe. It's something now that we say, don't be like this. But Jesus is saying, hey, you know the guys you guys all look up to? Unless your righteousness blows theirs out of the water, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Dang. The only thing you do when you hear something like that is go, we're hopeless. How do you know if you're someone who struggles with being a Pharisee? How do you know if you're someone who struggles with a self-righteous heart? Let me read through a list that might help you. You place yourself higher than others. You think, well, I'm only looking at Facebook images and YouTube videos, so I'm not as bad as people struggling with real porn. There's always a tear. I would never say that or respond like that, so I'm better than they are. In a liquor store, I go and get nicer whiskey. I haven't bought the stuff in a plastic bottle. You, You make these comments, I can't believe they did that or I did that though scripture itself says there's no one who does good, no, not one, and that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So that statement, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe they did that. Why? Because of what you believe yourso- about yourself or what scripture has to say, or I would never do that. I would never do that. I can't believe I fell into sin. I can't believe I did that. Why? How high of a view do you have of yourself? Another way is that you're someone who gives very little grace and very little mercy. Jesus makes it so clear. Those that are forgiven much, forgive much. Those that have a hard time giving lots of grace, understand this, that you have very little need of it. You're someone who lacks patience. A lack of patience oftentimes comes from a very religious, pharisaical, legalistic heart. You get angry at God over events in your life that you have deemed unfair. Let me use Ian's story that he used up here this morning from worship, is he could say like, God, I didn't close this deal. I've been praying all week. I've been talking to you about this. I've been serving you well. And, and you didn't close this deal for me at work. Like, you should have blessed me. Not understanding that God's love and God's blessing has nothing to do with what we do, but everything to do with what Christ has done for us. So people that oftentimes get mad at God and say, you should have done this, or what they're doing is they're tallying, keeping check marks of their life saying, well, I've been doing all this good stuff for you. In a sense, I've been manipulating and controlling you, God, so that you have to respond to me like this. And God's like, that's not how my kingdom works. It's one of grace. A lack of confession, people that oftentimes don't know what to confess have a very low view or understanding of their sinful hearts. Here's another one. Where do you run when you sin? where's your confidence? In other words, if you can't confidently, confidently run into the arms of God, it's because you have placed your confidence in your sin or things that you have done or not done. In other words, if your confidence on the weeks when you're doing really good, like I'm I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing good, and so I have confidence that I can enter God's presence, that is a misplaced confidence based upon how well you're doing. Our confidence on our worst week or our best week has to be the blood of Christ is sufficient for me to run boldly into the arms of God who loves me. So where's your confidence? You can see people's confidence when they fall into sin Whenever it's placed in themselves because they fall into wallowing and self-loathing and hating, thinking that the more I hate myself, the more God might love me. It's inconsistent. Here's another one. I am not receiving the praise I deserve for the work I'm doing. And I think I deserve that. Like no one's seeing the work I'm doing. It's pretty awesome. I should be getting more praise because I deserve that. That's coming from a heart that says, this is what I deserve. This is what's right for me. Here's another one. I have a hard time seeing my sin, but man, I have 20, 20 laser vision on spotting others. Lastly, I'm defensive. I'm defensive. You address me on anything and I'm defensive. Why? Because my inner lawyer rises up and says, no, I don't, I I don't like that. In other words, you coming to me, showing me sin does one thing. It shows me how much I need Jesus and his perfection and righteousness and the grace of God. But I'm saying, no, 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 no. You can't talk to me about that defensiveness is proof that you have a self-righteous religious heart all this to say these are all proofs that you can have a very self-righteous or self-righteous and religious heart and let me say this so so clearly self-righteousness is one of the things that jesus is constantly talking about because it is sneaky it looks pretty externally and it's going to lead to a slow and painful death it's just as egregious and it's just as sinful as someone slamming heroin in their arms it just looks a lot prettier on the outside, which makes it a lot, I shouldn't say a lot more dangerous, but it makes it real dangerous for the Christian community. You see, the person that's injecting drugs or doing something like that, it's real evident that their sin is there. But the person who's doing this, they can check all the boxes, look really pretty, but they can be dead on the inside. That is scary, people. That, uh, I mean, it's scary that Jesus is looking at the religious elite saying, uh uh-uh, it's going to have to exceed them. Where is there unrepentant self-righteousness inside of our heart? Because that is also the thing that can destroy us. It is still sin. I think today we we run the risk of becoming accidental Pharisees. Accidental Pharisees. To where Larry Osborne wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. Great book. I'll save you the time on reading it because he breaks down a list of the ways that we can become accidental Pharisees, okay? And here's his list. A few have been added. You have your radical Christians ready for this? Your radical Christians tend to see generosity as a leading indicator of what it means to follow Jesus. The required metric is a generous and simple lifestyle with the caveat that if you don't live simply enough, you aren't generous enough. So in other words, you need to live a very simple kind of poverty-ish lifestyle. There's the crazy in love with Jesus Christians, and they're another group. Their litmus test of a true disciple is costly personal sacrifices, financial or otherwise. Evidence that you have been persecuted for your faith is highly valued. So are a few wild leaps of faith that all of your friends thought were not so. Then you have the missional Christians. They want to know what you're doing to help fulfill the mission of God. If you start up a soup kitchen, volunteer, tutor, uh, or tutor at-risk kids, or move your family from the suburbs into the inner city, you'll have no problem earning the badge with this group of people. Uh Uh-oh. The gospel-centered Christians. Like to determine spiritual maturity by means of their theological grid. If you like big words, careful distinction, and nuanced debates, you'll fit right in. It also helps if you read something by Jonathan Edwards. There's the community Christians. They like to tell you the only way to do church is by house church or with a community that looks the way that Acts 2 looks. Forgetting what Bonhoeffer said about community, those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. The ecclesiological Christian. These people have the clear way of the way church should be done and governed including Sunday morning services. If you're not doing it how they believe, you are likely not doing it right. This would include a structure that only sees uh, um, house churches, like the prior one, and small groups or small churches lived out in houses. This is the way that the New Testament church should be done. They have a list of what Sunday should look like that's oftentimes based upon descriptive books of Scripture. You have the sensitive Christians. They like to act like society's police on everything, that is said and maybe how it should be said differently to be sensitive to all people. They are more of society's savior than Jesus says, or at least they see themselves this way. Though it wasn't, uh, though Christ's main goal wasn't to make sure that everything he said made his listeners feel good. These Christians have made it their goal to make sure that everyone else says makes people feel good. Then you have the Uber reformed. They like to make sure only hymns are sung, not with instruments and only wine is used during the communion and never in tinction. If you don't know what that is, it's when you stick the bread inside of the cup, which I don't like anyways, because it's soggy. So every sermon should be drenched with Calvinism. You see, maybe you fall into one of these camps. And what Larry Osborne is saying, that it's, it's, it's quite easy to become an accidental Pharisee because back then, what they were doing, people didn't think was wrong. And nowadays, maybe doing some of these things. In other words, are you adding something to what scripture says or not? So at this point, it's not super good news, but you have to look at the but that Jesus has right here. Verse 17, let's start over. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, an iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Please hear me this morning. At this point, I think most of us should be willing to say, dang, that's not good news. But this is really good news. Jesus came to earth. He came to us to fulfill the law of God. In in other words, every motive, every dot, every iota, every check mark, everything like that, Jesus Christ fulfilled in his life here on this earth, all of it. What he took to the cross with him that day was was a perfect life of law keeping. What he did on the cross was die for our ways of law breaking. He went up to the cross completely pure as a law keeper and said, let's make a trade. I'll take all of the ways that you've broken the law. You can have all the ways that I've kept God's law perfectly. That will become yours by grace through faith. And I will take on yours. There's an old uh, hymn called, Come Ye Sinners. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but I love this hymn. We're going to explain the gospel through it this morning. We have a few lines from this song. Look here. Because maybe some of you guys are feeling like that. You're like, Rick, I don't need to be beat up. Or I'm feeling beat up. Or I'm feeling like I am self-righteous or religious. Or I've just fallen into sin this week. Here's the good news of the gospel, guys. This is really good news. Look at the first line of this song. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Maybe that's you this morning. Poor, needy, weak, wounded, sick, and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Look at the next line. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. In other words, if you think the means of you coming to Jesus is that you got to clean yourself up, make yourself better, do something externally to make God accept you and love you, you're never going to come at all because you're missing the gospel. It goes on to say this in the song. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him, sinner, will this not suffice? In other words, look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood. Look at him on the cross and say, is this not going to be sufficient enough for you to run to the arms of your father? Then my favorite line in the song says this, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear savior, there are 10,000 charms. Here's the good news of the gospel. All of us love approval. All of us have fallen short in self-righteousness. All of us have religious and pharisaical hearts. All of us have broken God's perfect law. But Christ has done everything in a sufficient manner so that we can turn and run to him. He came to us. I love that here in this text when it says that I have come. Jesus didn't have to come. He came. God sees you through your faith in Jesus as though you've accomplished the law perfectly, fulfilled it down to every small detail. In the arms of Jesus, there are 10,000 charms. What does that mean? Everything that Jesus has, other than his divinity, he gives to you, his royalty, his beauty, his righteousness, his perfection, his purity, all of that, he makes yours. It's like the passage in Ezekiel that talks about all the things that God does. He arrays us, he clothes us in robes of salvation and garments of beauty. He makes us spotless in his arms. All of those things are available to us. The other thing that's available to us is the infinite love of God because of what he's done. Let me explain it like this. If the city made a decision to turn on the water in here, because normally there's sprinklers. I think there should be technically. But if the city made a decision to turn them on in this building for one hour and they had a key, you and your chair today would be powerless to do anything to turn it off unless you had the key. You could, you could, you could give the city the, the middle finger. You could cuss, you could scream, you could dance, you could do a million things, but you're not going to be able to turn off the power. You see, the key to God's love is the work of Jesus. And you can't do anything in your life today to turn that off. And what God does is he turns on the fullness of his love. In other words, his love never stops coming at you constantly. His love has never ceased to be poured out for the Christian. In other words, it is constantly coming at you, drenching your life, and you can't do anything about it because it's a decision made by his grace through the blood of Jesus. We just get to absorb it, relish in it, and enjoy it. And because of what Christ has done, we get to live new lives consistent to what his word lays out. Let me end with this. We don't get rid of the law, We understand that he fulfilled the law, especially that he was ceremonially clean, so we don't have to fulfill the ceremonial laws. But God's moral law is still upheld in the New Testament, and we should uphold it. We should want to live lives consistent to God's word. We should live life following his word. We just do it with a different heart motive. We're not doing it to get something from God. We're doing it because he's given us everything. But what we should also do is this, two things, is we should live with our lives submitted here but drenched here. Because if we don't know what this says, then we're going to run the big risk of being Pharisees. But also, if we're not surrounded in community, we are also going to run the risk of becoming pharisaical or going rogue. We need to be around people that are submitted to this word, that are drenched in the gospel, that are drenching one another in the gospel and helping one another live consistent to what God's word says. Otherwise, we're at big risk, which is why, men, I would say this. Man camp is a men's retreat and it's a way to do something about stepping in community. Maybe it's the first step you take. Maybe a gospel community is uh, women alike. We need community. We need one another. We have the tendency to be led by our hearts and go astray. We need people constantly taking us back to the truths of who God is. Hey, Ronnie, do you remember that Christ's life is accomplished and fulfilled that he's fulfilled the law that God sees you as a law keeper. You can go to him. We need those reminders. Let's pray. Father, we first confess that all of us have hearts that want to look at what we've done to earn our standing with you. We thank you that you are the only only one whose righteousness did exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so we celebrate your righteousness today in Jesus' name, amen.